Hi everyone, welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with our incredible sponsors, Najahi Events. More about them later. Today's guest, I don't know what's going on out there, but the people that organize this show, but we've got quite a lot of people with interesting stories about committing crimes and going to jail. So today's guest, really interestingly, is an American, but he's America's biggest jewel thief ever. He's an ex-convict, an author, a motivational speaker. He carried out a string of jewellery store robberies until his arrest in 1996. He spent 11 years in prison. After release, he began a career as a motivational speaker, life coach, and author. He stole over $18 million in diamonds and spent 11 years in some of the toughest federal prisons in the country but is also the only ex-con in the United States to be sworn in as an honorary police officer and the only ex-con ever to be recognized on the floor of the United States Congress for his work in helping young people and law enforcement agencies with the reality check program that he founded. He's got a million followers on YouTube, so he's clearly very popular. Welcome, Larry Lawton. Well, welcome to the show, Larry. It's great to have you on here. It's uh, you're my fourth, um, I would call it ex-con that's been on the show, um, and so the show's starting to get a bit of a true crime feel, which I never thought. But um, I'm really glad to have you on here. And we're over in Dubai. You're over in the states, and obviously you're very well known around the world. But for the people that might not know who you are, give us an intro. You know, uh, well, I'm known in America and pretty much around the world as the biggest jewel thief in the United States. I robbed between 15 and $18 million in diamonds over a course of about six years, seven years. Uh, I ended up going to prison for four 12-year sentences. I would not rat, and that's a big difference, and we'll talk about that in a bit. And then I ended up being tortured in prison. I was literally strapped down naked, beaten, and peed on by guards. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask that, that are you normal? You know, obviously that we'll get into that if you'd like. It's, it's up to, you know, I take, take it where you guys want to go. In prison, I ended up studying the laws, got my law degree, but I can't be a lawyer. I'm a licensed paralegal, actually, but I won cases in the court and helped a lot of people in, in prison get out. And I'm the reason I spent, I spent over three years in the hole in prison, which is a prison within the prison. And the reason that happened was because I was fighting the abuses of the prison system. A lot of people don't notice America has one of the worst prison systems in the free world. Uh, they're terrible. They, they, they're actually up until I think, was it uh, maybe 98, they actually executed youth in the United States. Uh, now I think, or maybe it was in the whatever, early 2000s, they changed that. But uh, they, they're not based on rehabilitation. They're based on punishment. And I get it, there has to be a balance. But here now, I'm known, I'm a, a best-selling author of Gangster Redemption, uh, which is a book that goes off the shelf. I'm in discussions with movie deals and stuff like that. And now I, I try to you know, help people not make the bad choices I did, Spencer, and go to prison. Because I don't ever say in any interview, anything I've ever done, that it was Oh, they did this to me. They didn't. No, I was wrong. I was a gangster. You didn't want to meet me, Spencer, back in those days. I was a rough guy. And uh, 
and I'm not proud of that. I was who I was. I didn't kill people in robberies or anything of that nature. But I was a rough guy. If you were in our business and you were a drug dealer or you were a, a car thief or you were a criminal, a bookmaker, loan shark, and you ran across me and you weren't with us because I was involved in organized crime. So I was uh, kind of like an enforcer and you didn't want to play around. So my, my thing now is to try to teach young people. That's not the way. Either you're in dead, you're dead or in jail. I'm one of the few who actually went to prison did not rat. That's a big one. And, and, you know, people go, well, it doesn't matter. It sure does, because everybody's word should mean something. My word meant enough that when I set this day, my, my uh, over here, Teresa and the people says, hey, Larry, you want to do it? And they looked everything up. And I said, sure, sounds like an interesting guy, Spencer. My word to be here, I will be here. That's just something I believe in to this day. And I don't think enough people do. I don't think enough people care about their word and I don't care about money because I had millions and millions of dollars. The government took the millions. Then you get out and you start making it and whatever you do, but it's not the money. It's the respect, the word you have, the credibility, your morals. Now your morals doesn't have to, I'm not going to get into any like real whose morals are right or wrong. As long as you're okay with you, you respect other people. I believe in the motto of you respect so you respect me the way I want to respect you and everybody will be happy and we can live a great life. That sounds like a decent, wholesome way to be. Now let's go back to when you were younger. You were obviously brought into this world by a lovely mother. What was your childhood like? You know, I, I grew up in the Bronx, Bronx, New York, and I grew up, uh, my dad was a construction worker, but he also then was the head guy on the World Trade Center actually, the two buildings. And he built the, what they call the tin knocker, which is like the ductwork or the air conditioned ductwork. Had 200 guys. In fact, they built the World Trade Center from 1968 until 1972. In 1970, um, now I was born in 61, so I'm nine, 10 years old. They had me on the roof, which was not, was like the 103rd floor at that time. They wrapped rope around me, let me crawl to the edge and look down and it's like just an amazing feeling. Obviously, uh, at that time, they were the two biggest buildings in the world. And my dad became, he was the boss of that job for that kind of the union. And I used to go around with him and pay off the mobsters because people don't know you couldn't build that building. They built those two biggest buildings in the world in four years. I mean, today in America, you take them uh, 10 years to build a highway that goes 10 miles. You know, it's just terrible. But it, they, they ran the mob, ran the construction company. And people don't understand what I mean by that. What I mean by that is, let's just say you wanted to build an office building in New York City. You get a contract and it's a $100 million contract. And you start selling rents for that building before you even build it. You know, you're renting office space. You're doing everything with that building. And now you have a deadline. That building has to be done by like two years from today on this date. Every day you're late, it's a $5,000 fine. So their goal is obviously be there early and everything else. And then their tenants and these people own the building. It's all in contract. Well, the mob runs the building and runs the show by doing this. The mob comes up to you, your owner of the building, and says, listen, you're going to give me 5000 a week. And you go, why am I giving you 5000 I'm going to make your job run smoothly. 
Uh, what do you mean? Yes, listen, if you don't want to pay, you better pay. Oh, you Listen, I ain't threatening, I ain't doing anything. Guy says no. All of a sudden, every other truck of cement that comes to that job has to be turned back because what like concrete, concrete gets poured into a cone. And every truckload gets poured in a cone. Now they pull the cone up and if it doesn't stay there for so long, the, the whole batch is no good, gets sent back. Well, every truck Spence is, is thrown back. Slows the job down to a crawl because they can't pour cement so they can't go to the next level. So the electricians can't work. The carpenters can't work, the, the plumbers can't work, the whole union, they're all standing there waiting. Now it's two days, they do another, they, trucks don't come, they come a little because the mob controls the companies and the unions. All of a sudden, this guy's saying, what's going on, my job, I need my job, get it going, I'm gonna get late. All of a sudden, well, if you pay, pay that money, all of a sudden it's coming, it's coming faster, everything happens on, on a right. It's called the street tax in New York. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, I'm sure it's done in a lot of the big cities too uh, around the world. That's how I grew up. My dad was in there and he used to go around to the mobs and big, give big envelopes. And I didn't know what it was. I'm an 11 year old kid, but I used to go into the bars and there were gangster bars. Uh, mobsters. I mean, typical stuff you see out of the movies too. They got the hat, the little cigar, the fat guy, you know. They used to love me. Hey, kid, come here, kid. Oh, I'll play pinball. We used to play pinball back then. This is in the 70s, early 70s, playing pinball. And the mob was very strong back then in New York. And uh, so they'd like, listen to your father. Your father's a good guy. So and it, I grew up that way. Then we're playing in the streets. We're gambling. We're, you know, learning robbing. We're, you know, we live, grew up in a very tight-knit Italian, Irish, German, very short little community that if you didn't live in that community, you were done. It had nothing to do with race. That's another good thing. Uh, where I grew up, we didn't have racism. I mean, it, it blows you away to some places in America that's still terrible, really are, it's sad. Uh, but in a, listen, in America, they don't care if you're black, blue, green, I don't care what you are. If you lived in that neighborhood, you were good. If you didn't, you were no good. And I grew up during the 70s where the busing, I don't know if you know what busing is. In America, they have what they, they were busing black kids to white schools, white kids to black schools, trying to integrate the system. And it's in the 70s. So I was involved in that, but I didn't see what I saw in the South, you know, in the South of the United States and where you had a lot of bigotry and stuff. So I grew up as a tough kid on the streets. Uh, my parents were good people. My mom was a nurse, but you know, they were oblivious. We're kids. They're working hard to try to feed a family. We had five brothers and sisters. So, uh, and, you know, the older you get, you get a little better, start robbing cars. We used to rob cars from chop shops. We got to know the people. We're gambling. We're uh, going to casinos. I remember sitting at a bar. First of all, the age limit in America was 18 at the time to drink. I remember sitting at a bar, Spence, and I looked. I, I will send you some pictures. I looked like a young kid. I mean, I went into military at 132 pounds, blonde, curly hair. I didn't look like this big, burly guy, you know, tattoos all over his head, bald head, goatee, biker type, if you want to call it that. And uh, I was sitting in a bar at 16 years old, and they're serving you drinks. I go, 
<laughs> now, you know, everything is, you know, no drinking this. You can't, you know, how it is. I don't know how it is all over the world. Uh, I'm not a, a big country tra uh, world traveler. I do want to go more. But matter of fact, your show, I, I, I'm going to come to Dubai when someone wants me to come out to <laughs> Dubai. I remember, I mean, I'm, I was born in 1970, so I'm a bit younger than you, but I remember going and buying my first pint of lager in the local pub at 16 years old, standing there, deep voice, you know, and, uh, and you know, four pints of lager, please. And uh, we, had, we, 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 have, we have this thing in, in, in England, there's old men used to drink this stuff called light and bitter, and bitter, and, and you had a bottle of light and, uh, and a bottle, and, and a bit, the bitter came from the pump and they used to put half and half in and that's what old men used to order and so what you do is that to, to put the guy off the bartender off you go yeah yeah four pints of light and bitter please and uh because no kid was ever going to drink that but you, you know because you wanted to get stuff ordered that's what you did and you know the one other rule was don't walk away from the bar to the table too soon because he'll work it out so you'd lean against the bar and pretend that you know this is where you're meant to be this is where you hang out this you know this is your territory <laughs> it, it it really is funny because I look back now and you know now there's laws and ID cards and double and they even give you nobody cared back then it was just and I'm talking in the now I went in the military in 79 but I'm talking about 77 you know and that was just like and, and it was just wide open nobody cared the cops knew you our cops I remember coming home Half in the bag, you know, drinking with kids. Cops see us, pull us over, take our keys, bring us home. You know, tell your parents, you know, if I see them out, I'm going to put them in jail, you know. And it, it, today, it's, you know, they ruin your life, you know. Uh, don't get me wrong. There's good and bad to both sides, but I'm a believer in let's get – that's why we have a lot of problems in the United States with cops because it's too much of an us-against-them mentality. You know, law and order is needed. We all know that. People who know me, even as a criminal, I said law and order is needed. But we have to have that balance where they're part of the community. And uh, if they're not, then you're not going to ever respect them. It's just a war and let's figure it out. And back in the day, we knew the cops. I mean, you wouldn't dare, you know, I mean, shoot them or fight with them. They'll kick your ass. And it was okay. Your parents will kick your ass after that. And it was okay with that. And, uh, but today we have this too much us against them mentality. And, and I actually talk on law enforcement a lot around the country. And I talk, uh, incident, what they call the uh, national association of chiefs of police, all this stuff. And as of, when I speak, Spence, I, I talk about how we need more community involvement. Nevertheless, uh, if you know the guy that's coming to help you or, or, you know, you call the cops, and he knows who you are, your family in some way or another, he's going to look at it a little different situation. He might know that your brother's got a mental illness and he might be, you know, and he's not going to pull his gun. He's going to not know him a little bit instead of a cop coming on scene and just wanting to shoot people. Or whatever. Now, I'm not saying they want to, but I don't think they either trained right. We, do, we, don't, we don't get it. But outside of America, we don't get how you behave over there. We don't get the whole thing with guns. We don't get you know, all the, the stuff that goes with it, with the racial profiling and the fact that you've got so many people incarcerated and predominantly black. Uh, we, we, we just, it, it doesn't, not only doesn't sit well with it, we, we just don't get it. We just don't get why it has to be like that. 
Well, I could tell you, and I deal with this every day. This is part of my missions, uh, is not only police reform, prison reform. As I, I was telling you even before the show, uh, the United States is the most incarcerated country in the world. Bar none. I'm talking straight numbers. Mm-hmm. China's got 1.3 billion people. We got more people incarcerated. We got 400 million. It doesn't make sense. People say, oh, they cut their arms off. That's not true. What they do in, in China is they have a honor system and they have a higher suicide rate because people dishonor their families and, and stuff like that. But the United States is built, and again, it's built on money. You know, the prison systems in the United States are so much money involved. There's a system I did a YouTube video on. These two judges were making money by putting juveniles in prison. Think of that. Ruining their lives, throwing them in jail, and they made $2 million or something. Of course, it was private. We even have what they call in the United States, we have private prisons. That means a company makes money when you go to jail. How do you, how do you, oh, but they say, oh, we could do it cheaper than a government. We could, yes, but your ultimate goal is your bottom line. You're a for-profit company. Now you're going to tell me, oh, we want them out? No, you don't. You want them in. You want them to, re, you know, re, uh, recidivate, they call it, you know, go back. And our system needs to be revamped from the bottom up. And sadly, we have a lot of politicians that go along with the prison companies and this because it's big money. There's lobbyists and there's donors. I don't know how other countries work. It's getting better where I think the, the communities and the cities are seeing it. And you said the, the racial profiling is terrible. And there are some, listen, I always say this, Spence, there's very, there really is good cops. There's good people out there want to do the right thing. But if you don't have the policies and you don't have the leadership and training in place to help you, how can you, how can you uh, do it? You can't. I, and the guns, the United States, don't even get me. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I'm a felon. In the United States, you can't have a gun, which is okay. I don't want a gun. Even when I did my robbery, Spence, I used a BB gun. That's why I beat a life sentence. A gun looked like a real gun, but it was a BB gun. But I beat a life sentence. And I got four 12-year sentences. And they ran them what they call concurrent. So I beat a life sentence because I beat the gun judge because I didn't have an actual gun. But the United States is so gun nut because so I think it's because of the way it was founded. Uh, you know, when we left England and, uh, you know, the the English wanted to take out guns. They called the Tories and not left. And then taxation without representing all that kind of stuff. But we're, we're past that. Back then we had muskets. You know, now what do you write to bear arms? You want a tank in your yard? You want a F-16 jet? I mean, it's, it's gotten crazy. And people, I mean, why do you, why do you need a machine gun? Or why do you want to have uh, multiple guns? You want a gun for protection. I can even understand. If you live in the rural area and you want to hunt and you do all that, kind of, totally get it. If you're living in a big city where I don't care what it is and you need a gun for what? The police are two minutes away, wherever you do it. And that's who you pay for. That's what your taxes pay for. It, it, it's a mentality that's so ingrained in the, in the people in America. That I always wondered how people outside America think about us with that. And the prison. Prison system is just, I was in it. And as I told you earlier, Spencer, I was strapped down naked, beaten, ripped out. They four-point you, they take you, and they put chains on you, strip you naked. God took his penis out, 
repeat on my face. He said, keep writing Senator's Law. Look at this. I just got fucking goosebumps. Uh, it took me many years, Spencer, before I said I wouldn't kill him. It took many years. Because now I feel so bad for him. How sick and how bad is his life if he has to abuse someone who's in the worst part of his life? So I'm at the worst part of my life. And I didn't do anything. I didn't beat them. I didn't hit them. I was fighting the system of abuse. The prison system, medical, everything, they killed three of my friends. I wrote an article, Abu Ghraib. I compared the United States prison system to Abu Ghraib, which was the prison in Iraq where the Americans were tortured. I compared the United States system to worse than Abu Ghraib, to what they're doing to us. They didn't like that. They threw me in the hole and they tried to break me. And I'm a hard-headed man, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, there's no many, many times I talked about how I contemplated suicide. A friend of mine committed suicide. And I tell that story. And, and I think back at those and how I survived. Maybe I'm meant to be, to have a message now to help people. But, it, you know, when the worst part, people ask me all the time, they said, Larry, you're in the hole for so long. I was in a hole for 11 straight months. Every month I'm getting beat broken ribs and they didn't give a shit and the worst fear it was not like and I went crazy I'll be honest I went crazy in the hole and what I mean by crazy they would come and they when they wanted you then they'd say lock up meaning lock up is you have to put your hands behind your back and they and they open the chute door where they feed you there's a little hot and you put your hands and they handcuff you from behind and then they'll open the door while you're handcuffed they never open that door unless you're handcuffed so now you're handcuffed and they open the door. But now I'm saying, F you, I'm not going to, I'm definitely not handcuffed. Yo, and you're going crazy. Lock up, lock up. No, F you, boom. Going crazy. I'm in this place. You know, I've learned something about solitary confinement. It is the worst torture we could ever do to a human being. We're communicable people. We, we are social animals to the biggest degree. Uh, I am for sure. And most people I think are. And uh, you put somebody in that environment and you start going crazy. I designed houses in there in my head. I've, I've changed. I used, to, I used to know the dimensions, count the cinder blocks, count quarters in the box. It, all the stuff you do in, in the hole to not go crazy. And you start going crazy. You contemplate your life. Will you ever get out of here? You know, days going to uh, um, uh, weeks and then weeks going to months and you're just like, you know, you don't even know you and you start going nuts. And then when they come and the fear was not when they came in and we, I tried to fight them. That doesn't work. You can, I'm a big guy, but you can't fight five guys with shields. I've been maced in the face. I've been concussion grenaded. I've been shocked. And that's when they just hit you and they take you out. And I, I was in there and I was going crazy. So they don't like when you cover, there's a window in the door and you cover that window. And uh, they say, take it down. I, no, I'm going to take it down. Blah, blah. They open the chute door. They spray mace. That goes like dirty. Right in your face. You're on the floor. Snot's coming out. You know, they take you away. And you can't breathe almost. You know, that stuff's in your eyes burning. That's when they strip you naked. They what they call four-point. And that's a restraint. Man, I, could, I don't think today. Matter of fact, uh, Spence, I don't say this much. I'm so claustrophobic. At this point in my life, I can't get in an open MRI machine. 
I have a problem getting on a plane. Now, I'll do it, but I have to have an end seat, a big seat, whatever. I have to get up. I have to feel like I can move. You can't put me in a like in, in a corner or a middle. I, I, I'll start going crazy. And I understand, and I never had this ever in my life. But uh, that claustrophobic feeling is just, it, it, it's invaded me. I mean, since I've been out of prison. And it's gotten to the, you know, it, things trigger in your mind and stuff like that. But when you're in that hole and they take you out and then they four-point you, it's, that's when, I mean, I wrote that in my book and I, and it took many, my, my writer, Peter Goldenbach, who's an eight-time best-selling author, he was Larry, it's, he, it took us two years to write the book because a lot of things had it in, you don't want to relive them, but if you're going to do it right, I'll send you a book, Spence, you send me an address, I'll send you a couple of books to your people if you'd like, and uh, I send them all over the world, so. The book goes all over the world. Okay, take me back to take me back to you getting involved in the diamond business because I, we had, there's some fascination around that because not too long ago we had a big heist in Hatton Garden in London a few years back and the guys were caught and also we have the famous the most uh, most famous story in UK crime history is the great train robbery that took place and we had the famous Ronnie Biggs was uh, one of the train robbers that went off to live in Brazil in Rio de Janeiro. Um, I had the good fortune. I used to live in Brazil, so I had the good fortune of meeting him before he had a stroke. And you know, a legendary man with legendary stories. And and we we were all enraptured and encapsulated in this whole world of crime. It's all very kind of glamorous and sexy and exciting. And whether it's mafia or or whether it's in fact, whether it's you know the, the, a fun story around petty crime and how petty petty thieves live their live their lives and stuff, but Diamonds are kind of, well, they're a girl's best friend, aren't they? So tell me, tell me, how was it Diamonds? Well, you know, I'll tell you a great story. You know, Diamonds, I became <laughs> the biggest diamond jewel thief in America. And, I, and all the robberies, especially the last 10 years, I'm on TV all the time about all the major, when London, when they went through the vault, and they got $100 million. The one in France, $136 million, walked in with the briefcase, took it out. I... Uh, and Kim Kardashian when she was robbed, and uh, the German one. I I'm on TV. I called every one of them how they went down. I'm the only one. That's why ABC always loves when I cut. Oh, how, how did they do? What did they do? Called it on a point. Here's why. My first diamond robbery. I was involved in a mob, and it was a setup. So the owner of those diamonds wanted the insurance. We wanted the money. They had owed money. I don't know how, who owed who. I got the call. I set it up. And I said, wow, this is great, man. You can get a pillowcase worth of diamonds. My first robbery was 150000 in my pocket. I don't want to know nothing. Just $150,000 in cash. I said, oh, this is nice. Man, you know, did my thing, hundred fifty k Okay. The next robberies, I started saying, wait a minute. If I could do this that way, why not do it myself? I started becoming and getting so good at it. And when I say, you know, like you say, why? First of all, diamonds. You can get a bag of diamonds that are in a briefcase for $136 million. You can't do that with cash, although cash is king. I often talk to people and they go, well, what would you rather rob? Uh, you know, a bank with, with cash or diamonds? It would always be 
cash if you can get away with the same amount. It's just you can't because you know how much a hundred million dollars in cash would weigh. Yeah, you you need you need a forklift truck, forklifts and trucks to get that, and then never get away. Where are you gonna put it? Where are you gonna hide? I can take one hundred thirty-six million dollars in diamonds in a briefcase and put it in an attic, and you know nobody'd know where it's at. So that's number one. And you get depending on who you know, you get about thirty cents on a dollar. So let's just take the one hundred thirty-six million dollars. That's what forty million dollars in cash you're gonna get. How to rob 40 million in cash can't be done. Like you said, you'd need trucks and this and everything else. So that's the one reason diamonds are. Obviously, they're easy to get rid of. And let me tell you something that might piss some people off. The diamond business is a crooked business. The guys who I robbed, my diamonds that I robbed, used to go to Little Italy. They used to go to New York City. The real Diamond Exchange wasn't 47th Street. That's all bullshit. That's where the tourist goes or Donald Trump goes or this asshole goes or whatever the hell it is to get screwed. The real one is they come to Little Italy down low. There's, there's, there's smelting places. There's, you know, cutters, everything else. They come from Antwerp or whatever they come from. They come from De Beers and Diamonds and then they go to cutters and then they come there and then they get distributed from there into the diamond exchange, and then they go all over the country. My diamonds, I know for a fact, used to go to California. Now oh, they're reset. They're rebirth. I love the birth certificate on a diamond. Go, oh, that, oh, it's certified. I'll give a shit. That's another con guy that's just making money certifying it. It's a racket. The diamond business is the biggest racket in the world. In fact, uh, the be a Russian mines has diamonds. They were going to open the mines up, but the beers, the biggest in the world, came in and bought all of those mines because they would have tanked the market. They would have tanked the market if they opened those mines. So they got control of those mines. And uh, the diamond business is like any other commodity. You know, the rich and famous want them and they're going to charge more and more for them. And there's this one. Uh, and they have and what marketing they've done in diamonds over the years. Oh, if you get married, you should have a diamond that's a quarter of your salary. Whatever comes up with that. Excuse my language. I'm sorry. You got me excited with diamonds. Yeah, but you're right. But you're right. It's a marketing play, isn't it? Because who comes up with that? Who comes up with that? It's 25% of your salary to buy the engagement ring. Yeah, who comes up with that? Listen, I understand, Mark. Listen, me or you, man. I'm an entrepreneur. I know you are. You're very good at what you do, and and I I don't I don't listen. It's 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 like anything else. They find an end. They're in the beginning, and how do you get here and get people to get to there? You know, well, you got to tell them this. You got to hype it. The pictures, the magazines, the Rob Report. We get celebrities to wear them. Everybody wants them. I mean, you know, once that happens, people want them, they become a commodity and everything it builds. And they've done a great job of it. No knocking that. But my thought when I started robbing diamonds was, wow, this is easy. They don't have the security that a bank would have because they're federally insured in the United States. That means the FBI is on you immediately. I ended up having the FBI on me. I didn't know it at the time. I only knew it after I got caught how bad the FBI wanted me because they have what the, in the United States they have something called Hobbs Act, which is interfering with interstate commerce. My, my, my act by way of robbery, but my charge is what they call 
uh, a Hobbs Act, interfering with interstate commerce. And that's the same as if you robbed the McDonald's and the federal government wanted you, they can get you because you just robbed the McDonald's that gets its potatoes from Idaho and you just interfered with commerce. So if the federal government wanted you, they can get you. Now they don't usually go after a you know crackhead that's robbing a McDonald's, you know. But if there was a band of criminals that were knocking off McDonald's all over the country, the FBI would come in and they couldn't get you for the robbery because it's not a federal crime to rob a McDonald's. But it is a federal crime if you interfere with interstate commerce. Mm, I didn't know that. Didn't yeah, know. a lot of people don't know that. So how did how did you get caught? What happened? Tell us about the job and t- uh, tell let us me about give you a little backstory on how long yeah. I went. Uh, yeah. I was got so good at it. I was uh, the best in the country. And I, that's not brave. I hate to say brave because let me let me emphasize that. Like I said, at the beginning, I'm not always proud of what I did. Didn't hurt people in the robberies. In fact, the people who I robbed liked me. A couple of funny stories there. Uh, I robbed this one jewelry store in Sarasota, Florida, which is a very nice area. And when I robbed the stores, there would be like buzzers on the door. You know, they don't let people in, which I love because they wanted me in there. I'm coming in with a suit and a Rolex and a, and a gold chain. They're thinking they got a great customer. They buzz you in. Now nobody can come in and just, you know, they have to buzz themselves or you have to buzz them in. So I'm doing a robbery. I put the people down and two old people knock on the door to want to come in. If you let them go and they look in, then, oh, you know, so you hit the buzzer, they come in. I go up, I open my jacket, and there's a gun in my waistband, and it's a sports jacket. And they look, and the ladies go, oh, I go, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it. Just come in. Don't worry. You're in a robbery. Everything's okay. So they, they wanted to get down, like, you know, they're scared, and I fell for them. So I bring them in the back. I said, sit in this chair, both of you. Just look at that wall. I didn't tie him up. I never gagged anyone anyway. I, I didn't tie him up. I didn't do anything. And I just said, just don't worry. Everything's okay. Um, you'll be okay. Everybody's in. Now, these two guys on the floor shutting up. I cleared the store out, uh, Spence. So after I cleared the store out, I actually had the idiot guy I had with me at the time went back behind the building with the getaway car, comes back again. It's in the book. You'll laugh. Anyway, he, uh, I come back in. I say, you okay? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go out. The next day, I, now I hit that store for about six, seven hundred thousand. Next day in the paper, they interviewed the old people and go, "Oh, he was a nice guy." <laughs> they thought I was a nice guy, <laughs> you know. I mean, but uh, I didn't hurt people, obviously. In the right, in fact, the owners all got their insurance money. So, as a matter of fact, the FBI gave me a great story. FBI says to me, "Guy was a nice guy too." Matt Mullen, he says to me, he goes. First of all, when they offered to me to rat, let me explain that one. Uh, when I got caught, they wanted me to flip rat on all the bosses and everybody that I work with. So they come up to me and they got a picture of my mob boss. And they go, do you know him? I don't know him. Guys, And these are eight by 10 glossies I'm sitting there. The next picture is me and him at a parking meter in front of our club, like a bar club in Brooklyn. And I go, oh, I just go to that place. So I don't know what that you know, picture. The next picture is me in his Jaguar, sitting in his Jaguar. And, and I say, oh, he's probably just dropped me off at the train stations near. So he laughs. He starts laughing. I go, listen, man, it's just not me. 
And that, you know, a lot of people don't understand this, Spence. That has to do with like Sammy Gravano, Rad, all these people ratted. And, you know, people want me on it. They want me to bring them on my channel to help them build and all. I won't. I just, I know people he put away. And people, oh, John, John was going to rat on him. He was going to write. You know, it's all become, it all becomes excuses on what anybody's going to do. Oh, he was going to do it first. Let me do it first. Listen. Would you ever do business? You're a businessman. You're an entrepreneur and, a, and you teach business. Would you ever do business with a man you can't trust his word? Never. 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 That's my first thing. If I don't feel that trust, I ain't doing business with him. Period. But anyway, so I said, it's just not me, man. And he goes, he started, he looked at me and he goes, you know, I got a lot of respect for you. I said, yeah, yeah. And it goes on, but it, it's kind of funny because when I got caught, it was like, oh shit, they started putting it together. And I'll tell you how I got caught. It was great police work. I mean, I didn't get caught on a rat. And I'm the only one who ever went away on a RICO, which is Racketeering Influence Corruption Organization in the United States. It's the RICO Act, where they get the bosses, they get the big people. And I'm the only one who went on a RICO. I'm the only person in the United States ever to go away on a RICO act alone because RICO is organization. But they thought my partner was a John Rodriguez. There was no such thing as John Rodriguez. I ended up getting busted on that for lying to them five years later while in prison. I got that one. But, you know, they, they, they you know, listen, it's like a man to a man. They respected it. And, and again, I never want people to think what I did was right. You know, obviously, but I didn't hurt people during the robberies. Even the people got their money. Even the FBI says, you know, you're the best we ever see, dirty. And Matt goes, you were the best I've ever seen. I wanted to get you. I've been looking for you for six years. Oh, shit. I didn't know this. I mean, I don't know it at the time. But the, I, they tried to push you. They all do. To rat. And I wouldn't because I don't believe in it. Uh, again, that's a big, you know, and a lot of people could say it. Oh, yeah, but you don't know. You get. Yeah, because you're facing life because you and you and this guy murdered somebody and he's ratting on you and you all rat on him. You know, uh, don't do the murder, whatever it is. Don't do whatever you do and have some kind of somebody's got to have some. If you both had integrity, you might beat the case, you know, and, and I know it's not right. I'm not trying to tell people to do something. And this. Uh, I often tell young people and I teach this. I say, you all think ratting is what, you know. If you get robbed by somebody out there, you're supposed to go to the police. You're supposed to pick them out of a lineup. You're supposed to testify against me. You're a civilian. Your mom gets robbed. People get, that's not ratting. Ratting is if Spencer and Larry are selling marijuana to the crew or out people. And Spencer gets caught and doesn't want to do the six months or eight months or two years, whatever it is. He says, wait a minute, I'll give you Larry if I can get off. That's ratting. That's having a plan and, how do you do business with someone who has zero, zero integrity or their word doesn't mean omerta? Bullshit. Omerta, you know, in a mob. Oh, omerta means you'll die before you're right. Oh, they're all ratting. It's not. And listen, I'm over that too. I don't get mad at that, Spence. I mean, I just won't deal with them. I won't deal in business with people like that. And I understand. When I look at them, I said, maybe he don't have the balls. Excuse me again. He doesn't have the, uh, you know, the the cojones. the cojones, the cojones, the toughness to stand up. You know what I mean? And I get it. 
it's tough. Don't think it's not easy. When I went to prison, uh, uh, Spence, I had a two two kids. One was 15 months old. My son was six years old. When I got out of prison, my son was 18 and my daughter was 13 and it hurt and it hurt a lot. And I have a great relationship with my kids today. My son works for me. My daughter, he's 31 and my, and my daughter's 25 and they'll, they talk about it all the time that I used to write them every day and, and they'd write and, and we had a better relationship than fathers do today out there who are not doing the right thing anyway. But that yeah. has nothing to do with it. I, mean, I had all the reasons in the world, two supposable reasons, but I don't think I could have lived with myself. T- tell me, when, how old were you when you first went to prison? I went in this case 34 years old until I was 46. Had you been in prison before? Yeah, I was in uh, Rikers Island. I was in Little Small. I was in Atlantic County Jail. Court would. And what kind? What kind of? What kind of time periods you've been in jail for previously? How long you had you been incarcerated for before? About another about a year year and a half. So. But I didn't have kids at that time. Sure, but you 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 knew you knew what the system was like. You kind of you were aware of it, yeah. And oh, absolutely. So, so you know, a year and a half is long enough to be in there to know that it's pretty shit and uh, it's not going to be a fun experience. When you were standing in the dock and and the judge said guilty and then he posted the sentence and said how long you were going away for, how, how did you feel in that moment? Great question, because. You know, they t- in the United States, they say you get 144 months. And you think, oh, when they say months, you think months. Then you start calculating the months in your head, and that's 12 years. It's like, oh, shit, I'm not getting out. And when they sentenced me, and then they wanted me in maximum security prisons, because I wouldn't rat, I really didn't think I was getting out, Spence. So I went in with a very violent, violent uh, uh, attitude, very aggressive very i gotta survive this if i die i die uh you know my wife and i at the time i had a very young wife uh, i was 31 she was 20 well no i was 34 when i went away she was 22 i was 12 years younger i met her when she was 19 we had our daughter second wife you know and i said to her right off the bat you gotta leave me she didn't want it. She busy. I said, you got to go. I'm on my way too long. You're not, you're not in prison. You don't deserve to be in prison. You know, I did the crime. She didn't even know what I was doing. So it's, uh, she knew I was a ganger. I'm a gangster, gangster, but she didn't know what and all that. So my wife needed to uh, uh, get away. You know, it's time for her to leave. And it was tough. That would hurt me. I talked about that. You know, you love somebody and you you know, you're laying in bed, you know, what? then you really don't care. That's why violent prisons, people wonder why prisons are so violent. You know, they weren't as violent on the street. They were only acts of violence because people start losing the little things that made them human. Uh, having the love, I mean, for, for, you know, your kids. You know, I was in prison, Spence, and I watched a guy get off a phone and this guy joked with him and he killed him. Killed him right there shanked him, killed him, and I, it was violent. I watched it. What happened was the guy was on the phone. He finds out his wife killed his two kids and then committed suicide on the phone. And he snapped. Obviously, he snapped. And uh, 
you know, I, I often taught young inmates, don't mess with people. You don't know what's going on in their head and their life. You think they're your friend. All of a sudden he gets on the phone and finds out all his money's gone, his wife, whatever, she's cheating on him. There's all something really bad like that. Uh, you could know someone very well and you'll, you got to read him. It's like the real world. And uh, if you don't, you know, you could be getting killed yourself over something stupid. It's a different world. Prison is a different world. I mean, a world people have no clue. And TV does not give it any justice or, or do the right thing. And that's why I do what I do, because I want to show the truth. I don't want I don't sugarcoat it or I don't glorify it. It is how bad it is from the food to the shitty guards to the beatings to the whatever it is, to the inmates, everything. I don't sugarcoat it because if you do, kids think, oh, I'm going to gang. You know, 18-year-old kid, they think they're badasses. I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to hang out with my buddies. And then, you know, they don't have to work. They got to do all that shit. They got to work. They're going to probably be abused. They think they're badasses. They get to a real prison. They're not a badass. I don't care how big and tough they think they are. They're not badasses, man. Because you're talking about seasoned people that were gang leaders, uh, people who were violent, people knew how to manipulate them, whether it's for sex or drugs, and they give you heroin, the addiction rates are crazy. You know, there's more drugs in the United States prisons than there are on the streets. People go, what do you mean? I said, I could get heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, weed, alcohol within 50 feet. People go, I go, in the streets, you might have to drive a mile, you might have to do this or whatever. In prison, it's right there in your unit. The corruption with the guards, because they don't get paid. I was in a prison, we were paying, a, there was an inmate making 10000 a month. Every month, expense. And we had a guard there. We were given $1,000 a week. That guard only makes 50000 Now he's doubling his money in cash. He don't know. He thinks it's weed. Come on, bullshit. I had on my channel a great guy, and I've become friends. He was one of the guards that guarded me. Okay? If you could look on my channel, your fans could look on my channel, uh, and he guarded me. His name is Gary Mass. Great guy. He ends up going to prison himself for bringing in creatine and cigarettes. He was the union president of that prison. And he was a guard, and I knew him well. I taught him how to make prison pasta. That's how he found me. Because I did a video on that, and his daughter said, Dad, there's a guy who makes that. So this guy, he, he's out now. He did a year in prison, this guy. He did. He was 18 years ago. You got to look at on my on my channel. It's a great car. I interviewed him a few times. And we become friends. And he, and he said, because he was always a good guy. He didn't bother you. He didn't beat you. He wasn't one of those kind of guys. He was. He was a good dude. That's all I can say. He was a normal dude. Well, I wasn't there when he did, but he used to get us paperwork of people who were rats and figuring that out. Well, he ends up getting busted for bringing in creatine and cigarettes for another inmate. Anyway, his daughter saw the video and he and he says, that's the guy who taught me how to make that. And that's how, you know, we contacted me and we, we ended up doing a small world, even for a country of 400 million people. So. Now, you've done something that's really quite remarkable in terms of being on that side of the law, and then you've worked your way to the other side. And I think it's really interesting that, that you've gone down that path, because I know that, I know that some people reform from prison, and, but we also know that the, 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 
the rate of people going back in is extremely high. The reoffenders rate is extremely high. When you were in prison, you said you studied. You said you studied law and you weren't able to become a lawyer, but you've worked with the police force, haven't you? Well, you know that you know you mentioned that, and I was and I'm now the only person in the United States, all over the country, to be an honorary police officer, sworn in by the state of Missouri, for the city of Lake St. Louis. I am actually a sworn badge, the whole works, the identity. Only ex-con in the United States it was on every major news station in the United States, and I'm also the only ex-con in the United States who's recognized on the floor of the United States Congress for helping young people and police agencies and you know the reason i do that and you know it's so funny because i hate to how do i say this i'm not a cop lover because i don't look at the cop i look at the person i'm a person lover if you do the right thing i'm going to help you i'm going to love you i'm going to support you but if you're an asshole to people and you think you're a badass because you got that badge come in my office and we'll see who walks out of this office <laughs> and, you know, and you, my point is, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't look at them as cops. I do. We need them. You know, I can't even tell it online. Uh, I'll tell you something offline that happened. But the, uh, the cops in my neighborhood, I, chief of police, we've become friends. We didn't get off on the right foot because I called him out, called his agency out on fed, spending federal funding the wrong way, you know. I can't stand police that buy tanks or bullshit with their with their federal money and confiscation funds. That's still that's my money. It's citizens' money. Just because oh they've got no. That, once you get it, what do you think you own it? What are you your own business? No, it's the citizens' money. You're supposed to spend it responsibly, do the right thing, build a basketball court for disadvantaged kids. You know, build a hall, give them education, do something. You know, don't go buy a tank for your agency. And I love the agencies that say this. Now I'm talking small agencies. Maybe you need one agency in an area that's, you know, cases a major something goes down and they need a SWAT vehicle or whatever it is. These little agencies, we got an agency here where I live. I think they got 30 cops. They got an armored personnel carrier. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Really? Why would you want that? And you know what their line is? Well, it was, you know, we got it from the military for free. No, you didn't. Yeah, you got it for free. How much is the man hours it spent on that? How about training hours? How about maintenance of the vehicle? How about everything that goes along with that? That's being coming out of the citizens of that city for what? You need something big. You're gonna call the sheriff's department. You're gonna call, you know, who's got the the men, the equipment, the training. You got 30 cops, half of them are 25 year old kids. Makes zero sense. And it's a waste of money. And people see that. And I'm so against that. So when, it, you know, people ask me, they go, Larry, man, you were a stand-up guy. You didn't rat. You were a convict. They call it in prison. But you support police. I support good police. That's number one. I totally don't support any kind of police that are like this George Floyd thing. That guy should go to jail and let him just be in population because it, it won't last for him for an hour. And you know what? It is what it is. Uh, you know, I was pretty bad about people in prison, I, I used to pull paperwork on pedophiles and I didn't like that. And, uh, you know, so whatever happened to them happened to them. I don't wanna know, you know what I mean? I made sure it was a legit charge. I'm not talking about a 18 year old kid having sex with a 17 year old. Come on, that's not, that's not 
even though the law in the United States is if you're over 18, you have sex with anybody under 18, you know, it, it, it's under the sex charge. That's BS. A 20-year-old kid having sex with a 17-year-old, come on, that's just two kids doing what the hell they do. I have no qualms with that. And in prison, we give a pass. But there's rules and laws in the United States that if you're, if you're charged with a crime with under 12 years old, it's a different note. So I would know. I would get the dep- uh, the uh, what they call the docket sheet, and then I know. Uh oh, this guy. Now he's thirty five and he's with a twelve. You're done. You know it, it. It wouldn't wouldn't last long. That's all I could say. Mm-hmm. So and and I agree with that. You know that. Uh, but I'm just such a. I don't know. I'm so basic, really. I think Spence. Yeah, but I mean, on, I want to know this because. You've, you you were able to turn your life around and most people aren't and you've got yourself stuck into the work that you did to become an honorary policeman regardless of whether you love like uh, uh, people or police doesn't to me isn't so significant what's significant to me is that happens to you so what led to that happening how did that happen and uh, what did you what great things did you do for that to happen ah it's a great question when I got out of prison Spence I said to myself uh, I was I, in fact I'm, I'm getting out of for over I was four for 45 at the time in prison and a big friend of mine, Ron, we used, to see, we used to see the young kids come to prison, 20 years old, think they're badasses, you know, they're not. And, and you'd see some bad things happen to them and their lives are ruined. They get hooked on drugs. They had to have sex. They had to stab somebody so they didn't do something, whatever it is. Their lives were ruined. And I used to say, Ron, when I get out of prison, we got to do something. But he, didn't, he stayed in at that time. And I ended up getting out. So I'm out of prison. Two, three weeks a month, not even. Frank comes up to me and says, Hey, Larry, I need a favor. I said, Hey, what are you talking? You know, a little tough line was, Leave me alone. I just got out of prison. I ain't breaking anybody's legs. Leave me alone. He goes, No, 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 Larry. He goes, I caught my 16 year old smoking weed. And he said, F you, dad. I said, Your 16 year old told you that? And I know this guy, nice guy. He's a golf pro. And I said to him, Really? I said, I'll talk to your kid. Now, you want to talk about having the stars aligned. When I was in prison, I had pictures. I don't know why I sent them from the prison out, because you could take pictures in the visiting room back when I was in on the yard. I got prisoners with me with murderers and gang members and bikers and mafia guys, whatever. Because we hang out, you know, it was just we take a picture to charge a dollar in the visiting room, whatever it was. And I ended up sending them out. So I have all these pictures. And some of these people are dead, killed, things happen. So I said, my buddy, I said, I'll talk to your kid. So I go see him. I said two curse words, actually. I I walk in. I'm a pretty big guy. This kid's a big kid. He's 16 years old. But he sees me. I I sit down. I said, you said to your father where the F he's been? Let me show you where the F I just come from. That's it. Never never curse words. I start showing him pictures. This kid's dead. First, I told my life story, how I went in, and a big shot doesn't mean anything, blah, blah, blah. Then I started showing pictures of people dead. You know, Spence, you could see his brain turning. You could totally see it. I'm with him hour and 45 minutes. I, le- I come back out. I, I won't forget because we went out to the gazebo. My buddy says, he goes, man, I really appreciate that. I really do. He gives me 100 bucks. At the time, I got no money. You know, I mean, I just got out of prison. The government took every dime I had. So, wow, thanks, man. He goes, 
He goes, and then uh, he calls me back about a week and a half, two weeks later. He goes, Larry, I don't care what you do with your law degree or what you're doing on this. You got to keep working with your kids. My son came to me and said, Dad, I don't want to go where Mr. Lawton went. I need help. His kid, wow. his kid, his own kid was trouble. Wow. And then I said, man, thank you. And it made me feel good. And then he says, can I give your name out? I said, sure. And now parents are calling me with their kids, giving me a hundred bucks. I says, wow, this is great. I'm making a hundred bucks. So all of a sudden, Spence, I'm, uh, I get a phone call. And I won't forget her name either. Her name is Jean Bandish. She calls and says, Mr. Lawton, um, Jean Bandish with Judge Ryman. Judge Ryman would like to see you. So I ain't seeing no judge. She goes, no, she'd like to see, hear what you do. She goes, I go, listen, do you have a warrant? So I'm not seeing a judge. I'm, I know I'm not doing anything illegal, but I hate judges. You know, I just, I mean, I know the system, especially the law. I said, listen, unless you have a warrant, I ain't seen a judge. She goes, no, you know, you're misinterpreting it. She goes, she just, she wants to hear about what you do. She heard the good things you're doing and everything. And I'm like a little bit like leery. And I said, all right. So they set a date for a Friday. Now I, what am I, I'm just, all I do is talk to kids. Got pictures and talk to kids. So my nephew at the time, who's since passed, a sad story, but that's all another thing. He shows me how, how to do a PowerPoint. You got to remember, Spence. When I went to prison, when I went to prison, I, I had a cell phone. You remember the gray cell phones, you Motorola cell phones? Yeah, the, the, big, the, the big ones. Yeah, it could be. I get out of prison, I get these little razor flip phones. I, how are these fat fingers going to touch these little buttons? Are you kidding me? I says, <laughs> so, I mean, technology, forget it. What computers? I had, I had a, the best computer when I went to prison in 1996, I had the best prison uh, computer you can buy, paid over $5,000, oh, a six-time modem, all this crap. Three years later, my own son, who was uh, nine or ten, he said, Dad, that's a piece of junk. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, technology, the advancement in technology from 97 to 2007 was off the charts with the internet and everything else. So anyway, I go in there, I, I do a PowerPoint, 10-slide ten, ten PowerPoint, and I'm um, the judge says there was other people in the judge's chambers, not a court, in the chambers. I they said, would you like to stay for the rest of the meeting? I said, nah, I'm out of here. And they okay, so I leave. This is a Friday morning. Monday morning comes, I get a phone call. Hey, Mr. Lawton, Judge Ryman sentenced two people to your program. What program? I ain't got a program. <laughs> he sentenced them for money. I go what? I came up with after that, which right now is the number one program in the United States. It's got the highest success rate, quantified not by me, by colleges. We got a ninety a uh, ninety uh, percent uh, rate of kids not getting rearrested. Seventy percent have better attitudes by their parents. Forty three percent have better school grades. Thirty one percent have better school attendance. I developed it's called the Reality Check program. And I got the pictures. I got four parts to well, it. Well, it happened all, all from the judge giving you some work. From, from the judge sentencing. And then I didn't have it. Then I had it. Now I'm so past that. But anyway, so as I'm doing this program and the success rates are climbing, newspapers pick it up, parents tell people all of a sudden. And then I get a phone call from 
uh, Mike Force, Chief Mike Force, been in law enforcement for 40 years, 25 as a chief from St. Louis area in, in America. And he says, hey, I, I heard about your program. I'd like to come down and look at it and all that. Sure, come on down. Came friends, he goes through my program. He's sitting in a program. He's watching other people in the program. He's blown away. So then he, they calls me, he says, Larry, he goes, you know, I want to do something different. I want to show people that people change. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I want to make you a cop. What? I hate cops. I mean, literally, I say that. And he goes, I go, I know. I know how you feel. I says, but he, but he also knew that I didn't hate good cops. You know? I says, listen, Mike, I wouldn't do it unless you have that kind of reputation like i won't work with a police department spence that has this mentality of i'm the boss yeah do it our way that shit you know what you know how this guy is a police chief this guy mike force is a police chief and what he does is he hires a cop and he says to the cop why do you want to be a police officer in this city if that cop doesn't say i'm here to help the community he won't hire him he says, Larry, I could find anybody that could uh, put on handcuffs, shoot a gun, recite the BS that's in the academy. If they don't have the heart and the want to help people, he gives out awards for the cop who changes the most flats, the cop that speaks at the most churches, the Scott cop that goes in and, and coaches Little League. He doesn't give a, awards out to the most DUIs, most arrests. He goes, because then I'm going to have all wrong arrests. They want to please the chief. They want to do the wrong thing got to give out what you want them to do. You got to incentivize them. Anyway, so then the media hears about it, Everybody hears about it, Congress. Everybody hears about it. Okay, now we're here in 2020, whatever, 2021. And uh, still, I mean, I'm recognized. I still go TV for all of the criminal stuff from Casey Anthony in the United States to any people going to prison or criminal robberies. And law enforcement, I'm known as one of the leading law enforcement experts on community policing. What's 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 your proudest achievement apart from you know being having kids and stuff? Well, what what do you what do you makes you really yeah, proud of yourself? I think sticking through things when they don't go right. You know, uh, let me give you what what I mean by that. And you're a businessman, you're gonna understand this. I started this company in when I got out of prison, 2008. And you go years that are up and down and up and down and you make your mistakes. I've made every mistake you can think in business. That's why now I know business because I made them. I've learned them. I survived them. And obviously hitting YouTube. Now, you know, we were the fastest growing channel on YouTube, period, which is an amazing. I went from zero to a million in a year. Wow. Subscribers in one year. We're at 1.1 something, I don't know, 1.1 million. We, we're, I'm only in YouTube less than 14 months. Wow. I haven't been monetized in YouTube since January of 2020. No, yeah, January. So 12 months, whatever it is, uh, 13 I months. That's incredible. Yeah, and we don't do any of the artificial crap I hear. Now people go, did you do this? I didn't even know you could do this. I learned YouTube now, biggest platform in the world. And I understand ads. I don't, yeah, I've learned that the business, but it's sticking through all those years from naysayers. Because to this day, Mike uh, uh, Spencer, you have people who ah, they're ex-cons. I don't believe in them. I speak all over the world, and and I was in Mexico, and they're good. But you, you have people who are going to be always naysayers, and that's okay. 
You know that business. I don't care. I know who I am. I know who the person I am. And you, I call them haters. And I call them people who always want to blame their losses on somebody else or why. Instead of being that positive outlook, pushing forward, learning from your mistakes. So my biggest accomplishment or, I mean, let's see, call it a single accomplishment. My biggest accomplishment is getting through those tough times without going back and crying. Because it would have been easy for me to go back and cry. Mike, I talk, uh, I keep saying Mike, I'm thinking Mike, my buddy. Spence, I keep telling people this. I know I could rob a jewelry store today and get away with it. That's how good I was. And I watch them. I, I go into them. I still do it. And I do it to show them. I actually did a rob place on one of my things to show them I could do it. But to not do that and live not the life you wanted to live or this. And they took things. And, and I never became bitter. A couple of my friends said, Larry, no matter what happened to you, from the abuses you took, from being abused, literally abused, tortured, to you, you never became bitter. You don't hate people. You like people. You don't. You don't have that hate that comes with, with bitterness, and, and that's your, that's a but tough did, thing. But did you did you always have likability? Were you always that guy that people kind of like were drawn to anyway? Were you that kind of personality? If I let you, <laughs> no. Meaning when I was a mobster, sometimes I had to be very, very. You you rather stay away from me. Okay. Uh, and that was done for reasons as well, obviously. But when I enjoyed people, I loved people always, used to throw parties and did things for a lot of people and did a lot. So I had that way. I was never scared to communicate with people. You know, you grow up in New York City, it's different like this. I mean, we could connect and it goes easy. I don't even know how long we're going already. Wow, an hour. <laughs> we'll wrap it up soon, I promise. Yeah, I got one at 11. So. <laughs> But the, uh, and, and I just think that, you know, obviously I try to teach people in my classes and stuff. There's a couple of things, Spence, that I believe are the most important things. And it doesn't mean have this degree or not degree. If you teach people two things, how to read, and I mean read with comprehension and understand and communicate. Because I don't care what idea you have or how good you are with this. If you can't communicate it and express it to the right people, you don't have it. You think you have it, you don't have it. And when I say reading is because if you could read, and I'm a voracious reader, and not about speed, I'm a vor- I just love to read and I read everything. You can do anything. You know, you can, you can fix something. You can understand directions. You can do things. It's a whole different animal. And your brain can, I mean, I was in the, in, in the hole for so long. I was in some holes that only give you a religious book. I've read the Bible five times, the Koran three times, the Torah three times, Buddha books every day, because that's all they would give you, you know? And I'm not really religious because I've seen all the, I hate to say BS, that goes along with a lot of things. I mean, I have my, my beliefs, but nothing, you know? I, you, I couldn't be led like by anybody. It's just not me. But I, I just believe the communication skills is, and getting along, you know, my buddy says, you're amazing. You can hang with gangsters or CEOs, you know, and, and, and get along with them and, and talk. And that's being well read. You read the papers, you understand things that are going on in the world, you, you know, and you don't have to be a genius. You just have to have a willingness to accept a lot of information and understand it and not be lazy. I think laziness kills a lot of people and they don't think they're lazy or they think they're, 
doing it, but they're really lazy. I don't mean just getting up and doing it because you can get up to all you want, and get in front of a computer, and do nothing. You know, that's being lazy, uh, or that's not being smart, or that's not being doing your time. Uh, wanting, if you're doing nothing, grab an article, read something in your in your space, or even outside your space, you might go into. And then you'll understand, you might, that'll come back. And a, and a good business, a very successful businessman told me this, good friend of mine, he says, Larry, you never know. He goes, I've watched you now. He goes, I watched you 10 years ago, eight years ago. Go on TV shows and hone your skills with TV and stuff. And now look how that has helped you now. And you never knew it back then, but you never got down on it. You never got down on yourself. And you just kept going going and going like the energy bunny. Larry Lawson, what can I say? Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for what an amazing guy and an amazing story. Larry! Such a great episode to have Larry on the show today. $18 million in diamonds. How about that? That was interesting, wasn't it? You could put more diamonds in a briefcase than you can cash. I thought that was fantastic. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoyed these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast and you're listening to it on iTunes, then please give me a five-star rating. If you're listening to it on any other podcasting app, then please leave comments, give us a follow, or maybe why don't you just share share it with somebody that could benefit from this content too, so that we together can grow our audience and get more people enjoying this excellent podcast.